0: Welcome to the new series of gardening podcasts from the Royal Horticultural Society. I'm Tony Dickerson, a horticultural advisor with the RHS. Every two weeks, we're going to be sharing the best in gardening with you. Gardening experts of the RHS will bring you the latest horticultural advice, scientific research, and tried and tested techniques. We'll visit the RHS gardens in Harlow Carr, Wisley, Rosemore, and Hyde Hall. The head gardeners will take us on guided tours of their impressive plots and give you exclusive masterclasses in successful gardening techniques. Plus, we'll have behind-the-scenes reports from the country's most prestigious flower shows. Whatever your level of expertise, whether you're just starting out with some tomatoes in a grow bag, nervously contemplating pruning a clematis, or planning an ambitious extension to your rose arbour, this is seasonal advice from trusted professionals you can listen to at your leisure, and it's guaranteed to get you growing. Coming up in today's podcast, clematis and climbing roses, scent and colour for every garden. Beefsteak, plum or cherry, how do you choose the perfect tomato? And wisteria, just how do you prune it? RHS experts guide you through. We are standing by the canal at Wisley in Surrey, the flagship garden of the RHS. Visitors often mistake the imposing half-timbered laboratory building here, at the entrance to Wisley, as an ancient mansion. In fact, it was purpose-built by the RHS in 1918 from reclaimed and recycled materials to house our scientific and research operations. The Botany Entomology and Pathology researchers are still based here, working alongside our expert horticultural advisory team. So let's head inside to join the rest of the advice team who are answering some of your seasonal questions.
1: I'm Lee Hunt, I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor and I've been here for seven years answering gardening questions but also I help people to uh, really get as many plants into their towns and city gardens as possible.
2: Hi I'm Becky Mealy, I'm an Assistant Horticultural Advisor.
3: Hi my name is Geoffrey Denton and I'm a plant pathologist here and have been at RHS Wisley for 10 years giving advice on disease.
0: Right, we have a question here about uh, rain and soil compaction. It's actually uh, an email from James Harrison, who is from Abbot saltford in Warwickshire. Uh, For many years, I've been gradually improving the condition of my soil by adding home compost. However, towards the end of, the, of last year, the constant rain has compacted the soil in my front garden to such an extent that I can hardly get a fork in. Can you please advise me how to break up the surface so that I can use my homemade compost to improve the texture? I'm sure many gardeners are in the same boat now due to climate change.
1: Well, it has been very wet, hasn't it, particularly at the end of last year. Um, And it just made me wonder, though, why it's got so compacted, because we are only talking about rain, and and normally we associate compaction with um, things like walking over the surface or or really um, sort of stamping all over it, really, and making it. So it does make me wonder why the rain's been so problematic, but uh, maybe the the first thing is to, to sharpen the fork and actually see what's going on in the soil. Um, try and sort of wiggle it in and, and see if we can break it up.
2: Yeah, maybe a, a sharp spade or something. Maybe you have a dig down and see what, if there's a pan there and, and if it's a compaction where the water can't penetrate
0: through. Uh, I'm wondering also whether it's a case of rather than digging in the organic matter of actually... Uh, using it as a mulch on top of the prepared ground. That way it will provide protection from heavy rain and you can let the worms and so on take it naturally down into the soil.
1: If it's a, a clay soil, obviously clay soils tend to get the most compacted naturally. And while the compost gets in between the particles, the fine particles, and binds them together into little crumbs, they can still get very soggy and stick together. So also the addition of something like sand might help if it's a clay soil. But you do need a lot. You were talking almost as much by volume of sand as to the clay to make a big difference and you need to do it over a wide area else all the water just trickles into the bit you've dug, fills up and then you've got even worse problem of being soggy. So do it over a wide area to get the best out of that.
0: We have a related question from Mrs Pearson who has also contacted the RHS Advisory Service and it's really to do with the, the soil in a, uh, an olive tree which is growing in a pot and the the actual soil, um, she describes as being like a stone, and the tree's looking quite sickly, losing its leaves.
1: OK, it sounds like it might have been in that pot quite as well, because one of the things is the soil that you literally have in a pot is usually actually a compost, and the organic material breaks down and down and becomes... Uh, both you see a literal sinking of that soil but then also more compacted and and probably the stonier appearance with all the because it's probably got gravel and if we're talking something that's come from the mediterranean it's probably got quite a lot of stone in it that they put in to help that drainage so um what often needs to happen then is a bit of repotting. Would you do that, Rebecca? Would you repot? Yeah,
2: definitely. I mean, it'll, it'll look like a big mm. lump of concrete on the end. So it's a case of getting in there, getting a hand and being quite vicious and stabbing away at the old compost and then and repotting it. I'd probably say in the springtime.
1: And we want something really nice and free draining. So probably a bit of Johnny's number two and then almost a quarter extra grit added to that to loosen it up and then pack it back down carefully not not too firm but you know you don't want it rocking around in its pot either
2: and you probably need to stake it if it's been quite a tall plant so if you're repotting it you probably need to stabilize it again so until it you know gets itself established back in that pot.
0: I think it's important to realise composts do change over time, and they can become very compacted. And uh, with a pot plant, uh, a pot-grown tree, or whatever, if possible, if you can repot it every couple of years. And with an olive, springtime would be um, ideal.
2: So, next question is a plant suggestion question. These people have a twisted willow tree, about four metres high, which they think is dying. It has been a feature of our garden for many years and will probably remain standing for several years to come. So we'd like to grow a climbing rose or a clematis on it to maintain the feature as long as possible. So could you suggest a suitable climbing or rambling rose preferably in pink colored scented disease-free with lots of small flowers? And could you also suggest a suitable for winter flowering evergreen climbing clematis, which will give the tree year round cover? A friend also suggested trying decorative climbing vegetables, aubergines, or cucumbers. Is this possible of sheer folly?
1: It sounds like it's going to be absolutely festooned does not it with mm. all these ideas So it's, uh, it does make me wonder really whether we can get everything on there because the problem with climbers is often they have quite different habits and pruning requirements so you can end up with this real bird's nest going on where you can overdo it. I think um, from my point of view I'd say try and choose things that are doing different things at a different time that you can unpick so um, looking again at the clematis viticella they're great because you can cut them down to the ground and pull the lot off in the usually about sort of mid-winter time and therefore you can get rid of that bird's nest quite easily and then you could look about uh, matching it with one of the more vigorous rambler roses so something like an american pillar as pink seems to be the what the lady requires so those sort of two because one's summer flowering in a permanent stretch and then the clematis you're removing and pulling off that untidy bird's nest and then it comes fresh green through the summer makes it um quite a good partnership but i have to say though because it's a willow i'm just wondering whether uh, it's a honey fungus hotspot, isn't it i did wonder that unfortunately with the disease hat
3: on you always think why is it dyed it doesn't give any indication about it um but a honey fungus is a classic problem of it and a very high incidence on willows the best thing to look for is to go to the roots or the stem base pull back the bark and have a look for fungal growth beneath the bark if you actually go on to the rhs website and look at honey fungus on our advisory um, profiles it actually has some lovely photographs of the images you would see beneath the bark and of the fruiting structures so that it can help with identification unfortunately if that's the problem it isn't very good to be leaving the tree there in its place. It would suggest that it might spread out and affect other shrubs or plants nearby, and even putting a new plant up and growing around it, that it might be affected and succumb to that. Given everything and uh, the positive things, growing up a plant will be lovely. It would look nice
0: just one word of caution four meters is not that high and so i'd certainly avoid some of the the more rampant ramblers things like cedric morris and wedding day and so on which will far exceed four meters left to themselves um and I wouldn't overdo it. I would I, I suffer a, a, a small one of the smaller climbing roses, perhaps even New Dawn or whatever—a a, a pleasant sort of shell pink. I think we'd describe it. Yes, definitely um, a, a definite shell pink. Rose of the year, a decade, or perhaps even longer ago. Very good, uh, long flowering throughout the season, and as I say, strong grower. And it's easy to maintain a climber rather than a rambler. Ramblers, simply because they are so rampant, uh, tend to be much more difficult to manage. And at uh, four metres, I say it's not that high.
2: I mean, with the climbing vegetables, I wouldn't say that aubergines or cucumbers would be quite a good idea outside, but maybe something like a gourd, like a, a swan neck gourd, or maybe even. Uh, butternut squash you could you know you'd have a short season you could get a plant growing and then growing them up the actual tree and it it, it could look quite interesting having these big squashes hanging off the tree.
0: I think we're picking up the phones in the busy office next door (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) Uh, just one of perhaps 60,000 inquiries the uh, advisory service deals with over the year.
2: So the next one is from Sue from Lincoln and she wants to know about tomato varieties so she's interested in expanding the range of tastes and culinary uses. Can you recommend any varieties apart from Gardeners Delight?
0: Uh, well, the choice there, there are certainly a lot of specialist seed suppliers uh, for tomatoes and it's well worth checking out on the internet. And there's also one or two specialist uh, vegetable nurseries that offer a very wide range, um, many coming in from Eastern Europe or North America. It's often a case of simply experimenting. Uh, many of these, uh, for example, the Italian varieties which are available, of course, really are adapted to a very hot uh, Mediterranean summer climate. And uh, with our indifferent summers, they often, the plum tomatoes and so on, you, you can have success, but often um, they are ones that uh, perhaps will not perform if we have a, a poor summer. Um, I found that some of the, the Russian varieties, things like black cream and uh, uh, from uh, the Crimea area, they're, they're often described as purple tomatoes. Although uh, uh, that's a, a great exaggeration, they're more occasionally sort of burgundy in colour. Not particularly attractive or always in appearance, but uh, they seem to be well adapted to a shorter summer and grow very rapidly. So. Uh, uh, it's, it's simply a case of experimenting that uh, there's an awful lot out there and uh, you'll find that some will succeed and some will not and uh, it's it's always interesting just to grow two or three different ones each year and see what the the results might be
2: it's also good to have a bit of a swap shop as well so here at the in the advisory office we um, everybody grows a few different types of tomatoes we bring in seedlings and we have a little bit of a swap over so it's quite interesting to see what you can take home and grow
1: if you want to choose varieties as well, we have done quite a lot of tomato trials. And the, the advantage of these is it's not just a list. If you look on the RHS website, again, you can get descriptions of those varieties because what tastes good to one person doesn't necessarily taste good to another it's the this old, old thing where you might want a more acidic tomato because that's your flavor or a sweeter one so it runs through those little variety descriptions and our uh, trials panels have literally tasted their way through sounds like a good job to me i have to say but they've tasted their way through these different varieties to both choose which ones grow really well and which one's therefore worth growing for the, in the garden <laughs>
0: I'm Tony Dixon, and you're listening to the RHS Podcast. Here in the garden at Wisley, the garden teams have been busy planting the last of the roses, cutting back the herbaceous plants before mulching the beds, and tidying up the ornamental grasses. But what else should you be doing now in the garden? My name is Matthew Pottage,
4: garden manager at Wisley. So one of the jobs we're busy with at Wisley at the moment is the winter prune for wisteria. It's a question everybody asks us and wisteria almost seems to be something people are frightened of pruning and pruning incorrect and it is something you need to get right for the best flowers and what we're doing this time of year is going into the plant we're looking at all the long extension growth so they're all the big long whippy shoots that the plants produce throughout the summer months and we're tracing those back to their point of origin to two to three buds. And we're actually gonna prune back all this long stem back to those buds. And it's repeatedly doing this that forms what we call the flowering spurs. So they're these small, almost knuckle-like stems. And that's where your flower buds are gonna form, and that's what is gonna give you the display in the springtime. One of the things to look out for when you come to Wisley in May time, like mid-May, late May, our wisterias are not just growing on walls as you would normally expect, but we've got freestanding wisterias that are trained almost like a shrub. We've also got wisterias that are growing up posts, like a big pillar of wisteria. So you can see if you don't have a wall or a big fence, there are other ways to use wisteria in the garden. So if you're up for trying a plant that's maybe a bit of a challenge, one plant that really, really grabs my attention this time of year is Edgeworthia chrysantha. It's known as a Chinese paper bush. It's got papery leaves, quite flexible, twiny stems, but it has the most wonderful, fragrant clusters of yellow flowers. But it's not known to be a particularly easy plant to please. It needs a sunny wall. It needs somewhere where the summer sun can really ripen the wood to help initiate the flower buds. But it, like I say, it needs a bit of heat, it likes good light, it doesn't like to be disturbed, and it likes quite a rich soil. So it's not the easiest customer to please, but if you can succeed with it, it's really worth the effort. And we have one right outside the laboratory at Wisley on the front wall, so do come along and see it now. It's starting to open, all the visitors stop and take photographs of it, and it's really one for the enthusiast to, to give a go.
5: My name's Jan Lamborn, and I'm one of the fruit team here at Wisley. Uh, This time of year it's an ideal time to start cutting down your autumn fruiting raspberry canes. So nice sharp secateurs, cutting them flush with the ground and you should soon be seeing some of the new shoots coming up and it'll be on those shoots that we get this year's crop of fruit sort of late summer into autumn. Now if you're looking for some new varieties to get in this year and you might want to be able to you can probably still pick them up in pots at this time you'll see them in bundles you'll need to separate those bundles don't put them all in together which is often a question we get asked so separate them out planted about 18 inches apart and a very good summer fruiting raspberry is one called tulamine. lovely sweet variety consistent size steady fruiting goes on for you know a good month or so um, and very very popular fruit If you're looking for an autumn fruiting raspberry, perhaps something like polka or Joan Jay. They should still be available in garden centres, plant centres, in pots at this time of year.
6: My name's Sam Gallivan and I'm the team leader of the propagation department here at Wisley. Um, Well, at the moment here at Wisley, in the propagation unit, we are doing uh, quite a bit of seed sowing for the the summer season here. So sweet peas, salvias, a, a great variety of annual bedding for the large displays we have here at Wisley. We would be preparing our seed trays with um, proprietary compost, uh, watering it in beforehand, making sure the compost is warm before you sow the seed, and then um, sowing your seed on a nice even surface, Uh, and then placing it either in a propagator, if you've got one, or if you don't have one, then on your windowsill. Anywhere that's warm and a nice even temperature. And if it's an annual seed and it's something which is uh, fairly easy to germinate, you should start seeing signs within a week to two weeks. Uh, Something like sweet peas, it's not too late. You can sow them now. It just means that you will get a a later flowering, probably around June, July. You'll be getting that sort of nice later flower so you can enjoy the scent for longer. Mechanopsis is a particularly popular plant at the moment or lots of gardeners absolutely adore it there's some fantastic colours blues yellows and reds something it's not an easy plant uh, to propagate the best thing to do is actually get it now and so it as soon as you can and take the best advantage of some of this cold weather that we've been having because it tends to uh, help with the germination. If not, you can cheat a little bit and pop it in the fridge for a couple of weeks and that can initiate the germination process. And hopefully you would start to see something probably within about a month.
0: So there's some thoughts for jobs to do at home. But if you're looking for activities further afield, why not try the free day Friday on the 1st of March, a chance to experience all four RHS gardens for free. And make the most of planning your RHS shows visits later in the summer with our early bird ticket offers, which are running until the end of March. You can find more details of these and other upcoming events and activities on the RHS website. Now, more of your questions answered by the RHS Gardening Advice Team. As we approach spring, the daffodils are beginning to, to show and it won't be long now as some indeed are already flowering. But we, we've got a question here from Christine Robinson of Oxfordshire who last November planted some 4,000 uh, daffodils and uh, I think from her letter here uh, she's saying that uh, she uh, took out plugs from the, the lawn and planted the daffodils replacing the plugs of uh, turf over the top and now she's finding that... Uh, The the daffodils are pushing up, not through the grass, but actually pushing the plugs up and uh, uh, leading to uh, the lawn lifting over large areas. Um, I guess there's not an awful lot at this stage that can be done about that, Lee.
1: No, it would be trying to sort of gently force down the plugs, but obviously there's 4,000 of them here. So um, whether it could be gently rolled, if a roller could be got for for a lawn... Uh, just to f- secure them back in place. But, I mean, maybe even just a bit of careful stamping in your welly boots might be enough
0: to do that. But but not if the shoots are coming through, you need to... No,
1: perhaps, uh, yeah, So I think uh, if the noses are already through the ground, you need to be very much more careful. And they they should settle down anyway a bit with the, the rains, I would have thought.
0: But uh, the larger daffodil cultivars, certainly an open piece of uh, rough grass, very good way of giving a spring display, and then they can be left afterwards to uh, uh, continue in leaf to build up the the bulbs and so on. And of course, um, that's a question we often get asked, uh, Rebecca, about how to care for the bulbs once they've finished flowering.
2: Oh yeah, most people want to know if they, you know, when to cut it down and whether to tie a knot in the end of it. And it, it's it's best thing is just to to leave them until that you know they really are dying down and the actual they don't look nice. I mean. I suppose you could leave it up to the shortest, probably about six weeks, I'd say. But, you know, ideally you want to leave it as long as possible to get all the nutrients down into the bulb so that it gives you a good performance next year.
0: I mean, daffodils are incredibly popular with us, Jeff, and generally we regard them as pretty trouble-free, but that's not completely true, I guess.
3: Um, no, unfortunately, planting over 4,000, you're bound to get a few problems coming in, even at a low 1% or less. Common problems that they will get is that things that come in on the bulb, such as basal rots, is a very common fungus that you find in the soil um, caused by a fusarium, and it'll affect the base of it and cause a rot to come up, and it just won't put on any roots and then therefore won't grow and won't get any higher. Unfortunately, there's no fungicidal treatment, and a lot of the things with diseases of bulbs is that it's best to remove the bulb once it's seen. Other ones that you can get once they start coming up is that uh, they can get something which causes brown patches on them and will cause kind of a a fire effect as the leaves start to look like they're flamed. And that's another fungal disease which there's no real treatment available for it, but just remove the leaves as you see them and it'll stop it spreading around further. And that can be a major problem. It's a shame, really, that there isn't too much treatment except physically looking at them and making sure you tidy up. A lot of these uh, fungal problems will survive the winter and then if they're left uh, the bulbs in to naturalise and then bulk up it will affect them next year and potentially you can see the problem building up as well as the bulbs.
2: There's quite a few things that cause daffodil blindness as well as them pests as well there's a um, narcissist bulb fly and what will happen is you'll find that the that daffodil won't fly flower for that year and then you'll find it just the next following year it will actually completely disappear. And the thing is to dig down and then you'll find that the actual bulb will probably either be eaten out or in the middle of it will be nice big fat grub that's um, eaten out the middle of it. And the best thing is just to, you know, to throw it away and to actually kill the, you know, the grub so it won't actually be coming to fly. It's actually when you're planting the narcissist that you have to be careful and actually make sure that, they're six, that they are at least six inches deep and they're deep enough so that the fly can't get to them and that's the problem sometimes with daffodils that are planted in the lawn is that you can't always get the hole big enough so you have to really make sure that you dig down deep on, on the lawn plantings and get them deep enough to protect them from the bulb fly.
0: Another thing we often get asked about is feeding bulbs and I think one of the biggest mistakes gardeners make is that they decide to feed their bulbs when they're actually flowering which is usually several weeks if not months too late so uh, if you want to especially with bulbs such as tulips that do need feeding to if you have any hope to actually build them back up to flowering size you really need to be feeding very early in the year as soon as you see new growth coming through so the fertilizer is there for the the roots of the bulb to actually take up
1: Right well we've got a question from Robert Campbell um, by email but we don't know where he lives and it's on bleeding walnuts. Obviously we've got no location here for where Robert lives but it's always useful to have that information because you know every garden's a different one and in different parts of the country the, the conditions are very different so it always helps us give a really good response. It's free to all RHS members and they can get in contact with us in quite a number of ways. If they want to come and see us, then we have an advisory desk that's in our plant centre here at Wisley. And we get about to a lot of the flower shows around the country as well, which are again on our website. But Alternatively, email you know gardening advice at rhs.org.uk. You can email us there. You can phone us, we're open Monday to Fridays, 10 to 4. So, we're more than happy to hear from you. And really, uh, the advantage is if you ring or um, speak to us in person, we can help in that much more detail. So, yeah, more than happy to help. This is actually quite a common problem we we find on walnut trees that. When you cut the the surface they they do bleed, and this is what uh, roberts found and he 's saying my my difficulties are i didn 't realize that this trees would produce sap, and it the sap would rise so early in the spring, and now i can 't stop it bleeding. Has anybody at the r h s got an imaginative idea where I can stop or reduce the bleeding so that the tree leaves up in spring, so a lot to worry about this tree.
2: It is unfortunate, and it does happen. We do get that quite a lot with walnuts and with also um grapevines that people prune them too late um after christmas um I, for, hopefully the tree's going to be strong enough and sturdy enough that it's going to take it for this year, and eventually it it will stop and it should leaf up but it's it's just something to be aware of for next year and in, in the future to ideally prune walnuts in say November time
1: really. Tony would you advise putting some sort of sealant over the wound to prevent it happening?
0: Well we get asked this an awful lot when people realise their tree or whatever is bleeding from pruning cuts. Uh, Unfortunately there's not going to be anything that's effective. You hear old wives tales about cauterising the wounds with a hot poker or such like. Nothing will have an effect. It's something called root pressure that lifts water to the top of giant redwoods, you know, 400 feet high, and there's nothing you can do to that pruning cut that will stop the bleeding until the tree comes fully into leaf. And generally speaking, uh, so long as it's not done too frequently, trees seem to tolerate it. It's not ideal by any means, but trees normally tolerate it, and uh, the following season are usually back to uh, their healthy best. Right, I think we've got
1: time for one more question that's been sent to the advice team here at Wisley. Vivian Murray.
3: She has a lovely camellia and she wants to create a camellia corner in her Nottingham garden. It's a south-facing 20-foot by 12-foot area.
1: Ideally, we want an acidic soil here, and therefore it is one that, before spending out on the camellias, which are probably going to be at least 15 20 pounds each, it's worth getting out and getting a soil pH testing kit. It's only going to cost a couple of pounds. You just simply take some representative soil, as it will describe on the instructions, mix it up usually with a powder or solution and it'll change colour. If it's one of the orange or red colours, then it's fine for camellias. Once it gets onto those sort of holly greens, you probably need to think about something else rather than camellias.
0: And I guess you know, if the soil is not acidic, of course camellias are great as container plants. Um, a container little more than eighteen inches across will keep a, a camellia going for many, many years. And they're superb as container plants, and so long as attention is paid to watering, uh, they can be kept going for many, many years and evergreen, so interest throughout the year. And uh, with a very spectacular, usually spring um, time display. But um, I mean, in terms of selections and so on of course the choice is very large isn't it very large
1: um i i still go by some of the old standards because uh when you go again to uh, gardens where they've been growing a long time things like anticipation and donation very common very easy to buy but they still have uh, this fantastic display they're both pink varieties uh, one's got sort of the Uh, a paler pink and more bell-like and the other one's got more semi-double deeper pink go for which one you have a look i'll let you look at those in the garden center to um, decide because they should be in flower because often they come in at that time of year in in sort of
0: well between january and april don't they to
1: the garden centers
0: yeah i mean we're we're very often asked about selections people want us to list and so on but as lee suggests they're going to a, a good specialist grower in the spring uh, we'll give you a chance to have a look and check these plants out and choose ones which particularly uh, attract your attention. And don't forget, we talk about camellias as spring flowering, but there's the autumn winter flowering uh, camellias, uh, one of the best being yuletide, a bright red with bright yellow stamens in the centre, but as the name implies, something that's often in flower over the Christmas period.
1: And the other thing with them is, if you're in a frost pocket as well, or a very cold gun, which I suspect it probably will be up in Nottinghamshire, white flowers tend to catch the frost quickest and most harsh, and they just turn brown. So um, avoiding those and going for the redder, pinker colours are often a better
0: bet. And presumably, Jeff, camellias are trouble-free.
1: You were saying about the frost being
3: very evident on the petals, and that can easily be confused. With a disease, camellia petal blight, this is one that actually, when you have the flowers, they actually start going brown, and unfortunately that's a disease that will affect them. Uh, it causes the flowers to rot off, fall, and shorten the life, and then they fall to the ground. So it's only a relatively new disease to the country only found in about 1999. It would definitely be something to watch out for. And thanks
0: there to the advice team. You can find further information on camellia and camellia hybrids in the March issue of the RHS's award-winning magazine, The Garden. Delivered free to RHS members, this month's articles also include tips for speedy veg for gardeners who'd like a crop in under 12 weeks. So that's it from the RHS Gardening Podcast for this episode. If you have any comments or questions for the RHS podcast team, you can email us at podcast at rhs.org.uk or on the website rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast next time more of your questions answered by the rhs advice team get a head start growing wildflowers for national garden week and find out how to attract the right kind of wildlife to our plots until then from me tony dickerson and the team here in the garden goodbye